0: Once again, to the Perimeter Church podcast. Parents and children losing each other is a regular occurrence at Disney World park staff is well-trained for these situations. When my brother got lost, it was a very stressful hour with a happy ending that became an oft-told family story. Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series Good News of Great Joy with this sermon entitled The Revelation of the Messiah, which covers Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 52. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at Perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Good morning, Perimeter Church. Our scripture reading today is from Luke 2, 41 to 52. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers." And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the word of the Lord.
2: Thank you so much. Let's pray together aloud our prayer of illumination. O oh God, who gives generously to those who ask, we ask that you would give us understanding that we may keep your word. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn our eyes from looking at worthless things and instead give us life in your ways. Confirm to us your promise in Christ that we may love and worship you in spirit and in truth. Amen and amen. I often like to ask questions at the beginning of the sermon to just Hopefully, get us thinking a little bit and orient us to not only where the passage is going to take us, but to get our hearts there in that process. And the question for you this morning is this: It's going to sound a little weird, but it's directly connected to uh, one of the verses, the key core verse in this text. And here's the question: What are the musts? M-U-S-T-S. The musts that direct your life. The ones that that. If you really look honestly deep down in your heart and in the desires of your heart, you would say these are the things that I say I must, maybe it's have, I must have this or that. Uh, It could be I must accomplish blank. I must feel a certain way. And if I don't feel that way, then I'm very incomplete or dissatisfied. Uh, It could be that I I must be blank or become. I must become a certain thing that perhaps either myself or, or those around me and the world around me are putting pressure on me to be or become. There are musts that drive every single one of us. The the deep desires of the heart that that lead us to believe and sometimes unconsciously, they're the kind of the, the instinctive nature within us that we think we must be or become or have or accomplish. And they drive everything that we do. The core key verse in what we just had read for us right there in the middle of the passage tells us that there was a must, a divine must, if you will, that drove everything that Jesus did. It's right there in verse 49 when Jesus said, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I, here it is, must be in my father's house? Did you not know? He's talking to his parents. His earthly father Joseph to Mary, he's, he's saying, You've known me 12 years now. He's a 12 year old boy at this point. He's on the cusp of manhood according to, to Jewish law and tradition. And he's saying, You've known me. Did you not know that this is the must that drives me? I must be in my father's house. I must be about my father's business so the question that really comes into view for us then is do the do the things the musts of our lives match up with that of jesus's do they do they match up with his heart with the the kingdom of god or are they way off course when we look biblically now you may not have grown up christian you may not even identify as a christian now and you would say why would that matter Why would I want to align the musts of my heart with the heart of Jesus and what he is driven by? And the the answer is, well, because if we believe that we are created by a God and for him, not just created by him, but we're created for him, to be with him, to be known by him, and the way unto him is through the God-man Jesus, and to know Christ and to be known by him and to be ransomed to him and to be known in such a way that we are united to him, if this is what we are proclaiming, then one of the very key implications of those beliefs is that my heart would begin to reflect his, that my musts reflect his, if you will. But we know, certainly I know, that the struggle is real, the battle is real. Even though I know Jesus and I love him, I know the daily battle of where the musts of my heart lead me to those things that I think I have to have or be or accomplish or become that are not in alignment with Jesus and the kingdom of God. I don't know that I can say very often, even even as a pastor, right? It's really easy for church people to lift their pastors up on a pedestal, but we're human and we struggle just like you. And I don't know how often I can say that the cry of my heart is that of Jesus's that says, I must be in my father's house. I must be about my father's business. Certainly, we're all a work in progress on that that endeavor. He's changing us, he's shaping us if we believe in him. It's as if Jesus is essentially saying to Mary and Joseph here in this passage, wherever the father is, wherever his work is centered, that's where you'll find me. I must be in my father's house. But I want us to look at the whole whole context, the whole story to understand a little bit of what's going on and what would it be that Luke would have us understand about the boy Jesus? It's interesting, of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Luke is the only one that records this for us. Matthew, Mark, and Luke often record many of the same stories of Jesus' life and ministry and miracles and so forth. John records many that they don't, but this is one that's unique in the sense that Luke records one, a story here that the other three do not. So what does Luke want us to see and understand about Jesus, the 12-year-old Jesus, And here's a few things that I'll give you first. First observation is this. Jesus, he wants us to see this. Jesus was raised by devout parents and was a part of a devout extended family and community. This is interesting. This is uh, very interesting as we look into the Jewish culture of the day and even the, the law that we would read about in Exodus and Leviticus and what it required. Here's one of the things that you may not know. The law obligated, all males of a, quote, mature age. Tradition became that it would be around the age of 12 or 13 would be when this would begin to be put in place. But the law obligated that all males of mature age would travel to Jerusalem, would journey to Jerusalem three times a year to attend the three great feasts, which were Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles, or sometimes in your Bible it's called the Feast of Booths. So all males of mature age require to go three times a year to those feasts, okay? Due to Here's another thought that goes along with that that help, helps us understand the context. Due to the, the Jewish dispersion that had happened many generations previously, and the fact that Jews now were living all over the known world and not concentrated there just in Israel, and due to that distance from Jerusalem for many that were a part of that remnant, Many Jews of that day didn't make all three. They only came to one, and for most, the one that they came to was Passover, which is where we are in this passage. Passover, when Jesus is 12 years old. Women were not required by law to attend, only males. And so the fact that Mary attended with Joseph and with Jesus and with many of the other men shows that we're dealing with a very devout couple here, devoted to the things of God, devoted to the law. Verse 43, as, you, as we read it, indicates to us that they stayed for the entire Passover. Many of these Jews were, uh, were poor. They weren't able to stay for the entire week of celebrations. They had to get back to their work to be able to continue to make money. We know that Mary and Joseph were poor based on, The the offering that they gave in the temple, the the sacrifice that they made was two turtle doves instead of a larger animal. But yet, verse 43 indicates they stayed the whole week. Again, perhaps indicating, man, this was a devout couple. We're willing to lose some income so that we can worship and celebrate the goodness of God in the Passover. Now here's the interesting, you may think, something interesting that you may think um, like me, how do you lose a boy for three days? How do you go a full day before you recognize he's not with us? So they had gone and spent the whole week there at Passover and it says that they were then journeying back north to Nazareth where they lived. And they went a day's journey into that trek back before they realized, oh wait, Jesus isn't with us. How how would that even begin to happen? Well, listen to this. Referring to that trip back, if the custom which uh, can be verified for a later day prevailed at that time, then it makes all the sense in the world because this is how they would have traveled. The women and the children traveled in the front. The men and the young boys came behind. They traveled in the back. And this is a big group of people. This is relatives and acquaintances, and it's a whole community in Nazareth journeying down to Jerusalem and then journeying back together and probably neighboring little towns as well around Nazareth. This is this is a huge mega family reunion and neighbors traveling down to Jerusalem together and back. And so, there's a lot of people. Now, remember, Jesus is 12. He's not quite a man yet, according to tradition, but he's also not a child. So it's understandable, maybe you would say negligent, I'm not saying that, but it's understandable that Joseph being in the back with the young men, is Jesus a young man, I don't know, in between, he's thinking he's in the front with Mary and the women and the children. And Mary's thinking, well, I haven't seen Jesus today, he's probably in the back with Joseph and the young men. And they get to camp that night as it was a three-day journey back up to Nazareth. And so they get to camp that night, they, they start putting out all their stuff and all the relatives are gathering around making food and whatnot for, for the day's journey to, to refuel and rest. And they start looking around and Mary and Joseph, don't you know this happened? Look at each other and say, hey, where's Jesus? And one of them says to the other one, well, I thought you, I thought he was with you. No, 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 I thought, I thought he was with you. I haven't seen him all day. I haven't seen him all day either. And the panic sets in. And they begin to search with frenzy, with great anxiety among, as it tells us in the passage there, in verse 45, among their relatives and acquaintances. Have you seen Jesus? Have you seen Jesus? Have you seen Jesus? And everyone's saying, no, I haven't seen Jesus. And then they realize he's not with us. We have to go back. We also have to understand that parenting today in the ways in which we like our kids to stay in the fenced-in backyard and go nowhere else is very different from parenting in that day. It's very different from parenting in the 80s when I was growing up. (laughs) But can you imagine what Mary and Joseph were feeling at that moment? If you're a parent, you know the feeling. Probably at some point in the years that you have parented, if you're a young parent and your child is still an infant or little, maybe perhaps you haven't encountered this yet, but at some point in the journey of parenting, there's always at least one moment where you can't figure out where your child is. Maybe it's at a mall, maybe it's at some public gathering spot and you're looking around and, and, and you're wondering, where, where is he, where is she? And, and, and the panic sets in, but I will say this, um, <laughs> In the, in the stupor of, of parenting when they're little, when they're babies, and the lack of sleep and so forth, there was one time where I couldn't find our now 14-year-old Abby. And uh, we were at home, so it's not like, it's not like she was going, you know, she's little, she's crawling. Not like she had crawled across the street, I don't think. But, but I, I started, where is she, where is she? And I walk into the room, this is a true story, I walk into the room and I said, Rachel, with a panic, I said, Rachel, where's Abby? I didn't realize I was doing this right here. And she said, are you serious? And I said, yes, I'm serious. Where's Abby? She could see it in my eyes, I'm, I'm panicking. And she says, sweetie, you're holding her. I was literally, I'm telling you, sleep deprived, I, The panic was real, but I was holding her, right? Okay. But we all know that some of us have lost children for more than just a few minutes and well beyond just holding them. And it's scary. It's terrifying. Can you imagine what Mary and Joseph were feeling? You know, there's so much to be commended about Mary and Joseph here. It might be easy for some to say, how do you lose a 12-year-old boy for a whole day, but I want us to focus more on what kind of parents were they? I mean, they, they they were raising Jesus in a community of believers. They were taking him to the temple as soon as he was old enough to go because they wanted him to know about what happened in that place of worship of the one true God. They wanted him to long for the word of God and for the presence of God and for the people of God. And I want to just ask you, parents, as as those, if you're a Christian, raising your children in a similar way, do you share the same ideals as Mary and Joseph? Seeking with all your heart to raise your children in a community of believers, certainly you can't change their heart for them, but pointing them in every way, certainly imperfectly, but pointing them in every way to the word of God, to the presence of God and to the people of God. Mary and Joseph seemingly did this incredibly well, but despite these good and godly longings for their son, there's no way they could have been prepared for what they found when they found him. Second thing I think Luke wants us to see about Jesus is that he displayed an insatiable desire for knowledge and learning. They found him, where? He wasn't, he wasn't at the, uh, the local mall or arcade, whatever that looked back like back then, right? He wasn't throwing rocks at goats like some 12 year olds like I would have been doing at 12 years old, right? He's not trying to set something on fire like I did my driveway when I was around that age, right? He, where did they find him? They found him in the temple. And what was he doing? It says three things, that he was sitting among the teachers, he was listening to them, and he was asking them questions, and the teachers were amazed at what he was saying. And it says that when Joseph and Mary found him, they were astonished. That, that word astonished is, is a powerful word. It's astounded. It's It's shocked, it even means in a a play on words, knocked out. They were were dumbfounded, they they didn't know how to put thoughts around what they found when they see him and see what he's up to. I think at this point in Jesus' life, they knew they had a very special son. Of course, Mary had been told incredible things that we just read about in the last couple of weeks in Luke one and two about who he would be, the Christ, the Holy One. She knew, but at the same time, what they see and behold, watching him in the temple as a 12-year-old boy, corresponding with these great teachers. Now, these teachers are the best of the best. It's Passover, it's on the heels of Passover, and, and, and the teachers that would come around into the temple at the feasts would be the ones that would teach the teachers. Perhaps it was even Gamaliel who, who taught Paul. Maybe he was one of the teachers there. Maybe it was even Nicodemus who would encounter Jesus many years later, but was a part of the Sanhedrin, which was one of the great leaders of the Jewish faith in that day. I wonder who were the teachers that were there that were astonished at this 12-year-old boy? They were amazed. All who heard him were amazed. Makes me consider how children, you know, kids ask the best questions, sometimes the hardest questions. Here's a few that I've gotten over the years for my kids. If God created all things, did he create evil? Have you seen heaven? How do you know it's real? How does God hear all the prayers of all his people at the same time? If God knows all things and rules all things, then why do we pray, dad? hey, let's see what's on TV, kids. Um, I mean, yeah, as a pastor, I know, I know kind of how to address some of those things, but man, those are, those are hard questions. Come behold the wondrous mystery that we just sang about. There's, mis- there's mystery in faith in some of what we wrestle with. Now, I'm not saying these are the questions that Jesus was asking Assuredly, his were even more profound and more deep, penetrating to the heart that the teachers were going, hmm, I, I don't know. It's really good. I'm, not, I, I don't, I'm sure I've thought, of, thought about that one before. Let me ask you a question, Jesus, because that was the rabbinic way to ask questions to provoke thought and learning. And so they'd ask a question back to Jesus and he would give an answer. And they'd go, man, how old are you? 12, my goodness, Jesus was certainly aware, even at this age at 12, he was becoming more and more growing in stature and wisdom, as the scriptures say, becoming more aware of his unique place in this world as the son of God. He had an insatiable desire for the things of God, for learning and for knowledge, So here we are back at where we started. Verse 49 and 50, where Jesus revealed his must. I must be in my father's house. Mary's in anguish. She's frustrated. She's mad as a mom, understandably. Why have you treated us like this? You knew we were leaving. You knew the whole hundreds of people of caravan to Nazareth were leaving. You didn't come. What are you doing, Jesus? She's a mom. She feels it. She's in anguish. Why would you treat us like this? And isn't Jesus' response interesting? He's not being a jerk. He's not being disrespectful. He's just simply stating, Mom, I thought you knew me. Do you not know that I must be in my father's house? Did you catch the the play on words there? What did Mary say? She said, "Your father and I have been searching frantically for you." Your father and I. And Jesus' response, "Did you not know that I must be in my father's house, no, no disrespect to Joseph. He's my earthly father and I will respect him. But did you not know that I have a heavenly father that I was sent to earth by on mission? I have a must. And it prevails over all other things. Did you not know? I must be about my father's business. I must be in my father's house. Jesus' whole life, as one commentator put it, his whole life was controlled by the divine must. This isn't the only one. Listen to some of the others in Luke. In Luke 4, 43, he says, I must preach the word, the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. In Luke 9, he says, the son of man, here it is, must suffer. He must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. In Luke 24, 5 and 7, he says, why do you seek the living among the dead? The angel says this, he is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the son of man, here it is, must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. And on the third day, rise. Was it not necessary, Luke 24:26, that the Christ must suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then again in verse 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. I must preach the good news, I must suffer, I must be crucified, I must raise from the dead and all the scriptures throughout all of human history up until this point, disciples, listen, must be fulfilled in me. These are the things that direct my life. These are the things that drive everything that I do, it's my purpose. Now here's the interesting thing, the profound thing in fact. The teachings of the New Testament lead us to understand, especially in the book of Romans, Paul teaches us often in his writings that when we place our faith in Jesus, when he rescues us, saves us by faith, by grace through faith in him, in him alone, something profound happens, and that is that the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ himself, indwells us and does something mysterious but beautiful, and that is that he unites us to Jesus. We're united to him, which means this. If you haven't tuned in, this is the point of the whole sermon. It means this, if you believe in Jesus, you're united to him and his must become your musts. I must preach the gospel wherever I go. I must suffer. Paul made it abundantly clear that part of the calling of the Christian life is to suffer, to share in the sufferings of Christ. I must be crucified Not literally, maybe, perhaps, if you live in one of these countries that we prayed about earlier today, this morning, but I must be crucified. Paul said, Galatians 2.20, for I am crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith now in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I don't live for me anymore. It's not the musts of my heart anymore. It's the musts of his heart that now captivate me and drive me and direct me because I'm united to him. If he says I must be about these things, then if my heart is united to his heart, if his spirit is indwelling me, then I must be about those things too. Note the sharp contrast though in verse 47 and verse 50. Remember it said all who were listening to him were astonished at his insight. But then look at verse 50. But they, Joseph and Mary, did not understand. One aspect of Jesus' suffering was exactly this. That men and women, including even his own parents and his own relatives and his own disciples, failed to understand him. Would be so close to him, but yet not understand him. Embracing Jesus' mission, embracing Jesus' must, means also embracing being misunderstood. It's part of the calling of the Christian life. One last thing to mention about what drove Jesus is that his work in his life and in his death and his his resurrection unites us to him through faith, if we believe upon him. And what does that do? Not only does it unite us to him, but it takes us from being slaves to sin, bound for hell, to now being children of God. That we now have the ability, just like Jesus, to say, Father. The God of all creation, God the Father, is now our Father, through Christ. Jesus said, when you pray, say Father. Galatians 4, 6 says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. John 1:12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God." What a profound, glorious, amazing, unthinkable, unimaginable joy to be sons and daughters of the Father, only through Christ. Last thing I think Luke wants us to see and consider is that Jesus submitted and Mary pondered. You know, when you think about what we've said previously, that Jesus was conscious. He was aware of being in a unique way that he was still growing into. He was, he was aware that he was the Son of God, but he was also aware, obviously, of the fact that Joseph and Mary did not understand him. When you consider those two truths, those two realities that are at play here, yes, I know that, that I have a heavenly Father, I'm the Son of the Father, and people don't understand me, my parents don't even understand me and what I'm about. It makes what comes next all the more striking because what comes next, it says, is he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and listen, and was submissive. That means literally translated, rendered constant obedience to them. He could have very well said, could have very easily said, on the back end of do you not know that I... I need to be in my father's house that this is where you would find me. And because I'm the son of God, you must obey me. You do what I tell you, Mary and Joseph. But this is not the nature of Jesus. This is not the nature of the one that Philippians 2 tells tells us. Didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather humbled himself and came in the likeness of man, came in the form of a servant to become, here it is, obedient to what? Even obedient to death on a cross. The nature of Jesus is, yes, I'm the Son of God, but I came to serve you. To be obedient, this is a little mind-blowing, to be obedient to the very law He wrote is part of the eternal Trinity. Honor your father and mother, Exodus 20. So here He is, The son of God, I must be about my father's business and you don't understand me, but I will constantly, unceasingly submit to you and obey you because you're my parents. We get a glimpse here, hidden, tucked behind these words of the very heart and nature of Jesus as a humble servant, submissive, Ultimately, to the plan of the Father, but even to Mary and Joseph. And Mary pondered all of these things, it says. She treasured them up in her heart. I think Mary knew, what is going on here that the, that the Son of God is gonna submit to me? What does that tell me? She's trying to figure it out. She's pondering, second time in this text, in, the, in, in Luke, that Luke's already said, and she treasured up all these things in her heart She's seeking diligently to understand, even though she doesn't yet. She will. But she's meditating on them. She's thinking deeply about Jesus. May we be like Mary in that way. The way this text ends is really interesting. For the second time, Verse 40, earlier it says it, but then again here in verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. I think Luke says this twice, to emphasize and reemphasize the reality of the incarnation for us. This is not, this is not a deity who came and didn't become like you, humans. This is the God-man, fully god fully man, and if he is not fully human, if he is not, as Hebrews tells us, tempted in every way that we were, yet was without sin, then he is not a sufficient sacrifice for the sins of all humanity. Yes, he's fully God, and that is glorious, and we will sing about that for all of eternity, but we also embrace that he came in the form of man, to grow in stature and in wisdom So that when he went to that cross, he went to the cross as the perfect human sacrifice. The one who has endured all things, suffered all things, experienced everything that it is to be human and he conquered death. So that through his death and resurrection, we too are more than conquerors. This is good news of great joy. Father, would you lead us now on the back end of having heard and read and considered your word, would you now press it deep into our hearts? May we be a people who like those that day in the temple would be astounded and amazed at all that we see in Jesus, that he is the fulfillment of the scriptures, the Messiah, the one who has come, he is the one that all of the prophets and the Psalms pointed to. The law is fulfilled in Jesus. May we see it. May we see him as the perfect human and the perfect God, our Savior, our King. Be praised, O oh Jesus, we pray
0: in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.